hope everybody's doing great. Want to uh, welcome all of our physical locations and those of you joining us online. I hope you had an incredible Thanksgiving as we've kind of kicked off the Christmas season. And at our house, we kicked it off by watching the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard. And uh, it is... It is a Christmas movie. They voted on it at the Council of Nicaea, I believe, in AD 451. But anyway, uh, really glad to, uh, to have you guys. Uh, we are uh, wrapping up this series that we've been in uh, through most of the fall uh, called Recalibrate. This is the 11th and final week of the series. Kind of hard to believe it went by so fast. And I just want to go ahead and kind of loop back around uh, to the tension that I just kind of acknowledged on week one of this series, if you can think back that far. And I just want to acknowledge it once again as we wrap up the series, because to some of us, we're like, man, that went by so fast. And it did. And the tension, uh, and I acknowledge this on week one, was that it was super aggressive and really naive to think that we could cover all 433 verses, all 16 chapters of Romans in 11 weeks. And that I wasn't even going to try to do that, but that I, what I wanted to do was to cover all four parts of the book. And I just want to remind you what those parts are once again. In chapters one through fall, through four, fall tells us the really bad news. And the bad news is worse than you think, which is why the first few weeks I had to wear a preaching helmet when I preached. And then he says, chapters five through eight, he tells us what the good news is. And if the good news isn't, doesn't sound good to you, it's because you don't know how bad the bad news really is. And then in chapters nine through 11, he unpacks the implications of the good news. And then in chapters 12 through 16, he applies the good news to real life. Now, remember once again, the origins of the letter is that Paul writes this practical letter filled with all kinds of good theology to a church gathered in Rome that had just experienced a massive cultural crisis. The Jews got kicked out of the city of Rome. And then five years later, they came back to a very Gentile church and they were divided over all kinds of issues. And so Paul writes this letter to recalibrate their internal compasses back to true north, which is reminding them of what the gospel is and what it isn't and how we need to have unity, not uniformity, but unity in Christ. So that way this message of the gospel can go all around the globe. Now we find ourselves in very similar circumstances with what we've gone through over the last couple of years, massive cultural crisis that has divided so many of us. And so we've been using the book of Romans to do the very same thing that it's been doing for thousands of years, recalibrate our internal compasses as Christ followers back to true north. Now, here's what Paul's doing as we cover Romans uh, chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15, is he's going to launch into a very helpful, but a very extended discussion on this subject. How do we have disagreement with people that have different opinions on issues that we feel very passionate about. Now he's primarily talking about relationships within the church. But if you've been with us over the last like chapters, like 9, 10, 11, 12, he'll start with relationships within the church and then like concentric circles, take those principles and apply it outward towards uh, our relationships out in society and within culture. But he's primarily saying, okay, let's start with the church. So how do you have disagreement with people in your small group? How do you have disagreement with people in areas that you serve in? How do you have disagreement when the staff makes a decision that you don't like, understand, or agree with? Like, what are we supposed to do with that 
Um, and how do we disagree in a way that doesn't discredit the gospel message? That's what, that's what we're trying to get our heads around. And we honestly don't do this very well. And the reason why is as a human race, we don't disagree with each other very well. Can I just like get really vulnerable with you and just kind of say, you know, uh, as a pastor, one of the things that I didn't anticipate when I got into ministry and I'd never get used to it is when people leave the church. Like it doesn't matter whatever reason that they have. Maybe they're very good reasons. I always take it personally and it always hurts, even though I know it shouldn't. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Uh, I'm under no illusion that you should stay in this church like for the rest of your life. I am not saying there's never a good reason to leave a church. God calls people to churches. He calls people through churches for all kinds of reasons. Uh, contrary to pop, you don't need to clap at that. All right, so contrary, <laughs> contrary to popular belief, we are not in competition with other churches around our city. In fact, um, I'm a huge fan of every Christ-centered Bible teaching church in our city. I'm friends with most of the pastors. We have a text chain. We're encouraging and cheering each other on. With all of that said, I will say that there's lots of bad reasons to leave a church, meaning there's too much serial church hopping and shopping. And it usually happens when we have a disagreement or we don't like something. We have a tendency in our Western kind of consumeristic mindset to treat the church that we belong to sort of like the fitness club we belong to. And I'll stay just as long as it fits me, as long as it meets my needs. But as soon as it doesn't, I'm going to bounce. How do we have disagreement and that sort of like staying power to say, you know what, I'm going to be committed even though we don't always see eye to eye on what we might call secondary issues. Last week, if you were here in chapter 12, verse 16, Paul says this, he goes, man, live in harmony with each other. Great. How do we do that? Like, how do we live in harmony? There's lots of unhealthy ways to do that. Uh, we can avoid conflict and avoid the hard conversations in the name of harmony. But that's going to eventually catch up to us, and that's not a healthy way to deal with it. How do we live in such a way where others see that we are honorable, even in the way that we have disagreement? And much of the rest of the world looks at the church and says, you guys are just as divided as anybody else is. So why would we want to be a part of that? See, in this world of algorithms, echo chambers, and tribalism, this has never been more important. And honestly, we at times see disagreement as a threat. Like we live in a world where if you don't see things the way that I do, then I'll just cancel you, unfollow you, block you, and villainize you. Um, I read a book earlier this year uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it was basically saying we have kind of created this society, especially with younger generations, where it is emotionally unsafe to have any sort of disagreement. So we just don't know how to do that in a constructive way. And rather than setting an example to the rest of the world for how to do this, unfortunately, we end up just mirroring the division that we see everywhere else in the world. And this was happening in the church in Rome. They were deeply, deeply divided. Here was the issue that they were facing. The new Gentile Christians, they, they kind of been brought into the faith at a later date than the Jewish Christians. They just simply didn't know what to do with all of the Old Testament laws, rules, and regulations that their Jewish brothers and sisters felt so passionate about. And that's what was dividing them. Now, in order to kind of understand the context of Paul's teaching in Romans 14, I need to introduce you or reintroduce you to this simple phrase right here, freedom in Christ. 
And honestly, I don't think we talk enough about it. Like I grew up in church and I can't think of very many messages where I heard on the subject of the freedom in Christ. In fact, for some of you, that's maybe a brand new concept because from your perspective, it sort of looks like uh, Christianity is just a bunch of rules and regulations that are confining. But the gospel says the exact opposite, that we actually have more freedom in Christ than what we probably realize. Paul addresses this in another one of his letters in Galatians 5, verse 1. He says this, he says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Well, if you've been here during this series, you know that we've said the purpose of the Old Testament law was to be a mirror. It's to show us that we are sinners in need of God's grace. It's to show us the standard that we all fall short of and we can never live up to. So we rest everything on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying here is he's saying, don't take Jesus and all these other things to try to justify yourself before God. Say you are saved by grace alone. You have freedom in Christ. What was happening in the church of Rome is that um, the Jewish Christians were looking down on the Gentile Christians, taking, um, living in that freedom. And then the Gentile Christians were looking down on the Jewish Christians because they weren't participating in the freedom of Christ that was theirs. So look at what Paul says, starting in verse one of chapter 14. He says, accept. The word here is like receive each other. Uh, receive other believers who are, here's his description, weak in faith. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. So a couple of words of explanation here. Um, Paul's going to say, hey, uh, there's two groups that are divided in the church in Rome. And he says, uh, there are some who are weak in faith and others who are strong in faith. Now, intuition would say, well, since the Jewish Christians had been following God a whole lot longer, then I think that they would be the ones that would be strong in faith. But it, that's actually the exact opposite. He's saying the Gentiles were the ones that were strong in faith. Why? Because everything was resting on the sacrifice of Jesus. They were being justified in God's eyes through their relationship with Christ. And ironically, he's saying the Jewish Christians, those that have been following after God a whole lot longer, they are weak in the faith, not a statement of judgment, a statement of description because they were taking Jesus plus all of these other Old Testament regulations trying to justify themselves. And he's essentially saying to the Gentiles, hey, don't get into an argument with them about what they think is right or wrong. Now that, that, those words right and wrong, maybe a way to describe this would be this little phrase right here, disputable matters. And a disputable matter, and what Paul is saying here, is that there are some issues that we will just disagree about. And it should never cause division within the church because in the long run, they are of no real consequence. Uh, the Greek word is uh, adiaphora. And basically what that means is things that don't really matter. It's not really commanded in scripture and it's not forbidden in scripture. Actually, scripture is silent on it. Now, with that said, I need to be really clear that Paul is not saying that there is never a time to divide or never a time to part ways over a disagreement. If you take the, a, a collective look at all of Paul's writing in the New Testament, he'll talk about a couple that we see most clearly. In uh, Galatians, he says, if anybody teaches a false gospel, 
Meaning if anybody teaches that Jesus isn't the son of God, that we're not saved by grace through faith, he doesn't say, well, just shrug your shoulders and say, we'll agree to disagree. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you actually send them packing. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually addresses open immorality that um, people were unrepentant of. He's not talking about um, general sin. Like we're all going to sin. He's talking about open immorality that we're not turning away from. And he doesn't say, well, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato. He didn't say, you know, uh, who am I to judge? No, he actually says this. He says, with compassion and grace, but directness, remove them. Not, not, not excommunicate forever. Remove them, hopefully for the purpose that they can be received back in. So yes, there are times to draw a line in the sand. The point Paul's making in Romans 14 is not everything should escalate to that level. There are more things that we could put into the category of disputable matters than not. And uh, there's uh, some discrepancy over who said this. Many think that uh, it's attributed to Augustine, but it's so helpful. Uh, he said this, he goes, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty or freedom, but in all things, love. And that's a helpful principle in, for, in us to understand Romans 14. So what are the essentials to the faith? Uh, theologian uh, Michael Bird uh, breaks this down. I think it's really, really helpful. He basically would divide it into three categories. He said, there are some things that are just essential to salvation. Primarily, the person of Jesus Christ and the process of salvation. Like that is essential. Then he would say, here's a category of things that are really important. Like they have uh, implications, but not essential for salvation. So it's like view of God's word, definition of marriage, gender, and moral issues. These first two categories, by the way, scripture is really, really clear on. But there's a third category, and the third category would just be the non-essentials. Non-essentials to salvation. So this is preferences, opinions, and debatable issues. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more of an exhaustive list here in just a minute. It's going to be fun. Um, but primarily, it's like, 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 should Christians get a tattoo or not? Like, uh, should we uh, participate in Halloween? Like, these are just a few of like the preferences. Like, the Bible doesn't command and it doesn't forbid. It's a debatable issue. See, here's the deal. Many of us have deep-seated opinions on all sorts of subjects, which is great. We just need to acknowledge that most of those opinions are not necessarily backed up with a chapter and a verse. We don't have a thou shalt or a thou shalt not. Therefore, if we don't, we don't need to escalate it to the level of division or villainization. It is an opinion and that's all that it is. In fact, the Greek word for opinion, I think if I'm pronouncing this correctly, is Twitter, all right? <laughs> it's just an opinion, all right? Now, um, you have every right to have an opinion. In fact, I want to hear your opinion. I, I want to learn from your opinion. I've had my mind changed by many of your opinions, but we just got to recognize that that's all that it is. And opinions change. You likely have had opinions in your life during a different season of life that now you don't. Like, like things, things change all the time. Now I'm talking about non-essentials here. I'm not talking about essentials to salvation. Remember this important little phrase right here, especially when it comes to the church. Methods are many and principles are few. Methods always change, but principles never do. 
And oftentimes, even like within the church, like we can get so hung up over a methodology and we divide over that rather than the principle behind it. So let me give you an example of this. I remember hearing about this. Uh, this was like um, decades ago, but there was this like small traditional country church that got into a huge, huge debate over worship style. And this is like going, and it wasn't over whether or not to like worship with drums and guitars. This goes back even further. It was whether or not to bring a piano into the church. And this was at a time whenever pianos were seen as the devil's instrument. And the reason why is because saloons had pianos in them. This is why, like, whenever you watch country uh, Western movies, there's, like, always a piano in the saloon. And so the church decided to bring in a piano into worship, and uh, it divided the church over it. They were like, we want to bring this piano in because all the people we're trying to reach hang out in the saloons, and this is going to be familiar to them. And ironically enough, a lot of our hymns that come out of our hymnals were bar tunes that we changed the lyrics of, so that way it would be familiar to non-Christians. How ironic. So this church gets like all divided over the fact that there is the devil's instrument on stage, the piano. And so here's what the half of the church that didn't want it did. They stole it and they hid it. And for like a year, nobody knew where the piano went until finally one day the janitor was like doing some cleaning and went down, down into the baptistry to clean out the baptistry, which is empty, by the way, had no water in it because the piano was in the baptistry covered up with blankets. And the tragedy of that story is churches that divide over non-essentials don't introduce very many people to Jesus. See, we've got to be really careful about dividing over methodologies. See, the longer that you're a Christian, and I can say this because I've been a Christian um, a lot longer than, uh, I've, um, I don't know how I want to say this. Um, I've been a Christian um, more so than not. In, uh, I'll just move on. All right, so, so <laughs> not in my notes. All right, so. So here's the deal. Well, the longer you're a Christian, the more deep-seated your opinions become to where you begin to confuse your opinion with God's word. You end up giving it the same weight. See, here's what I want to understand. Spiritual maturity is not developing convictions based on how much you know. Let me say that again. Spiritual maturity is not developing convictions based on how much you know. It is learning to show restraint in the weight you give those convictions. In other words, we don't elevate our opinion over non-essentials to the word of God and then hold that other over other people. We've got to acknowledge that the Bible is silent on so many issues. What the Bible gives us is principles in which it wants us to apply that to specific situations. And the reason why God does that is because he wants us to mature. And this is the goal of parenting. Like when you have little kids, you start off telling them what to do in every specific circumstance. But as they grow older, you start to move back and to give them a bit more freedom. And by the time they are adults, young adults, hopefully you've instilled enough principles and you've modeled those principles to them where they can begin to make decisions for themselves. You don't have to hover over their shoulder when they are 30 years old, telling them what specifically to do. And in a very similar way, God wants us to grow and to mature. That's why the Bible is silent on so many issues. So uh, Paul is going to give some examples of what they were dividing over, and then we'll make application to us, all right? So verse two, he says, for instance, or we could say, for example, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. 
So once again, going back to our two categories, the weak in faith and strong in faith, he says that the strong in faith were the ones who ate meat, the weak in faith were the ones who ate vegetables. And I'm going to show an incredible amount of restraint here and not make a joke at the expense of our vegetarian brothers and sisters, all right? I'm not going to do that. And here's why. Because this isn't about paleo, keto, or the carnivore diet. The issue here was that in the city of Rome, it was filled with pagan temples to false gods. And so everybody was going in and they were offering sacrifices to these false gods. And many of those sacrifices were meat. And since an idol is an inanimate object, it doesn't consume steak. It would just be left there. And eventually somebody would come through, collect all the meat that had been offered to these idols, and they would recycle it and sell it in the marketplace. And you didn't know if that ribeye that you were purchasing was legit or if it had previously been offered to an idol. And so here was the division in the early church is that the Jewish Christians who weren't really fans of meat anyway, they were like, man, you can't purchase any of the meat at the marketplace because how do you know if that was formerly offered to an idol? And if you eat that meat, then you are unintentionally participating in idol worship. So they just said no meat whatsoever. And the Gentile Christians weren't down with that. They were like, wait a second, those idols in the temple are false gods with no power. There is only one true God and his power overrides all that nonsense. And besides, in Acts chapter 10, didn't Peter have a dream from God where God lowered this sheet from heaven and it was filled with all these animals and he said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So there we have a chapter and a verse. So pass the bacon. That's what they were like divided over. Here was the other issue that they were divided over in verse five. He says, in the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. What's he talking about? Well, a couple of things. First of all, he's saying that the Jewish Christians felt very, very strongly about the tradition of their Jewish holidays since God was the one that had established them to remind Israel of his various promises throughout the year. In addition to that, they felt very, very strongly that the day of rest and worship should be on the Sabbath, which is actually our Saturday. It's not on Sunday. It was Saturday. And they said, this has been the way that it's been throughout Israel's history for 1,500 years. So why should we go changing that now? And they say, we actually have a chapter and a verse as well. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath day, their Saturday, by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day, rest, day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. It's kind of interesting. Uh, several years ago when we um, started a Saturday night service, um, I, I got uh, um, some people kind of upset about that. Uh, ironically, when we stopped doing the Saturday night service, I had people upset about that. But... Um, but I remember getting this email from this one lady. She was upset that we were starting a Saturday night service because she said, Pastor, uh, the Sabbath is not Saturday, it's Sunday. And I was like, technically, it's Saturday, right? And we end up like dividing over stuff like this, all right? So the Gentile Christians were like, hey, listen, man, it is all fine and good that you wanna worship on that day. You wanna keep some of those traditions and holidays. But listen, all that's part of the old covenant. And Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection releases us from all of that. So it is non-essential. In fact, we have a chapter and a verse too. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink 
or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. So they were gridlocked over these two subjects. So here's what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't say, well, you're all right. He doesn't say, well, you know, why don't you just agree to disagree? And he certainly doesn't say, hey, those of you that want to have a cheeseburger on a Sunday afternoon after church, why don't you just go down the street and start your own church? Second Romans Community Church. He doesn't do any of that. Interestingly enough, Paul actually had an opinion on both of these subject, subjects as well. In addition to what he writes in Colossians 2, on down in verse 14, he states very clearly, he says, on the authority of Jesus, no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. So if you wanted to eat that steak that had formerly been offered to an idol, Jesus makes it clean. You're not sinning by doing that. Paul was very, very clearly on Team Bacon Burger on Sunday afternoon. He's just like, hey man, you wanna worship? Like, it doesn't really matter what day of the week, just do it with all sincerity, do it in spirit and truth. So here's what, here's what makes this discussion so helpful is that Paul doesn't side with the Gentiles and point his finger at the Jewish Christians and say, you guys just need to grow up. That's not what he does. In fact, he actually turns to the Gentiles and say, hey man, you have this freedom in Christ on these issues, but you know what? In order to build up the church, you might need to be willing to lay those freedoms down. He shows us how to maintain unity and love as a church family, even when we disagree on things that we feel very strongly about. Now, remember, I'm talking about non-essentials. I'm not talking about the person of Jesus or the process of salvation. So in these areas, for the sake of mission to get people to Jesus, we have unity. We're not going to condemn others on matters of conscience. And we're not going to feel superior to others on matters of conscience. So um, whether or not to eat meat and what day of the week to worship on, not really hot button issues today that divide us. We've just replaced them with a whole bunch of other issues. And let me just kind of dive into this and just kind of throw a few of these out. And I guarantee you, you probably have an opinion on all these things, but all these things, the Bible is rather silent on. Uh, so one that comes to mind is just how should we dress when we come to church? Like there are some people that are of the opinion that when you come to church, you wear your Sunday best. And here's why, because we are coming to worship God. We're coming before him and we want to present ourselves to him the best way that we can. And they would use this analogy. If you were go to meet royalty, you dress up there. So why wouldn't you dress up when you go to church. Not a bad point. But then others come back and say, well, yeah, but I'm not meeting royalty. I'm meeting my heavenly father. And I just want to come as I am. And scripture is very, very clear that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So I'd actually, I'd actually rather make sure that my heart is right when I come to church. Hey, very good point. Who's right? It is a disputable matter. Uh, here's another one. Um, music. Specifically this, like in the church that I grew up in, and I know a whole bunch of you can kind of relate to this, is that um, I grew up hearing that uh, all secular music was bad and sinful, especially heavy metal or hardcore rap. And it was like, we watched videos in youth group about how when you played heavy metal songs backwards, like, like there were secret messages from Satan. And I didn't even know that until I watched that documentary. Then I went and tried to play all the records backwards just so I could hear or I remember like my parents were like, you know, uh, you cannot listen to any sort of like heavy metal, but they didn't really tell me why. Like uh, there's a really good reason why. Like we've talked about it in this series, like, hey, we want to be formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Is that very helpful for your growth? Like the process of your mind and heart. But they didn't really do that. They were just like, no, it's just bad. 
And here's what that did for me as a rebellious, like, church kid. Just made me want to listen to it all the more. And so, like, when Metallica's Inner Sandman video came out, like, I, that was forbidden in my house. And so I just watched it in secret. And I just, like, turned on the TV and I would, like, have my hand on the remote and would be looking down the hallway just to see if they were walking in. And if they walked in, I would turn it over real quick to Nickelodeon. So it's like, um, yes, what we fill our heads with, that is the process of sanctification and discipleship. But is it sinful to listen to all secular music? Well, that is a debatable issue. And there are actually really good points on both sides. Here's another one. Um, alcohol. Many of you grew up like me. I grew up in a household in a church, total teetotaler. We abstained from all alcohol. I actually thought to have a sip of alcohol was a sin. And my wife as well. Like she grew up in a very similar environment. We get married. We moved to California and started a church about an hour away from Napa Valley. And we started inviting all these people over to our house uh, for dinner. And uh, they would bring a bottle of wine. And it totally freaked us out. Like we had no idea what to do with it. We had no idea that they were bringing that over as a gift and to open it to share over the dinner table. And so we offended so many people because we just kind of took it and like stuck it on the shelf and didn't open it because we were like, to like total abstainers. Now, as I kind of grew into a different season and as I studied scripture on this, the Bible doesn't forbid alcohol, it forbids drunkenness, but that also means that uh, genetically, one out of seven people have a predisposition to alcoholism, which means we don't wanna trip them up or make it more difficult. We have freedom to do this, but it isn't always wise. Uh, here's another one, since we're having fun. <laughs> Yoga, all right? Some say, some, put your phones down. You don't need to email me yet. <laughs> Some say that's a practice connected to Eastern mysticism, which makes it hard to separate the practice of it from its origins. In its original form, it was about clearing your mind and finding oneness with things around you, which is hardly what Christ taught. But others will say, no, 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 wait a second. We can redeem the practice and use it to take care of our bodies with stretching. And there's nothing anti-God about letting your mind relax and learning some good breathing techniques. Who's right? It's a disputable matter. It, you might have freedom. Is it always wise? Like we could go back and forth on this. I won't even get started on yoga pants. All right. Here's another one. Uh, uh, home education, Christian, private, or public school. Man, you, who needs the UFC? If you want entertainment, just being three Christian families who have deep-seated opinions on all three, throw the subject out there, get a bag of popcorn, and watch it go down. Here's another one. Uh, politics. Uh, we would say, like, how can you be a Christian and be left-leaning? Don't you care about biblical values like sanctity of life and limiting the government's reach into private life? And others would say, well, how can you be a Christian and be right-leaning? Don't you care about social justice and economics that just don't just benefit the privileged? See, both sides are guilty of using Jesus' name when it conveniently fits their agenda, and they are man-made government parties. Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican. So who's right? So... We may not be arguing over food sacrifice to idols or what day of the week to worship on, but we've got our issues in which we need to apply these principles today. And here's why. For the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the world looks at the church and just sees civil war, why would they ever want to be a part of it? So here's five principles and then we'll be done. Principle number one, if you're taking notes, conscience matters. It really does both yours and theirs. Look at what it says, starting in verse five and following. It says, you should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. 
Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. In other words, he's saying all of our lives is an act of worship. Remember last week, we said we want to be a living sacrifice of praise. So he's basically saying this, uh, on disputable matters, everything we engage in or refrain from should be an act of worship. So he says, if you really feel in your conscience that you shouldn't eat meat, this would be what he's talking about with them. Then he says, and you're doing it to honor God, then man, by all means, that's what you should do. If you're like, no, I'm going to bless this meat and thank God for what he's provided, then by all means, do that and do it to the honor of God. He's saying that we don't want to take advantage of our freedoms to indulge in anything we want for selfish reasons, but we're not refraining in an effort to earn something from God either. See, here's the principle of conscience. If you sincerely feel like something is wrong and you do it anyway, then it's wrong to you. And Paul specifically addresses that on down in verse 23. Look at what he says. He says, but if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you are not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. In other words, he says, even if it's not wrong in and of itself, if you sincerely think that it's wrong and you do it anyway, you just violated a personal conviction, which ends up making it wrong. Now, with that said, not wrong enough for you to hold that conviction over other people, but because it violated your own conscience. Now, what is our conscience and what role does it play? It is really dangerous to violate your conscience because your conscience is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It is a form of moral intuition where you know something before you're fully able to articulate it. The etymology of the word breaks down into two, science, which means to know, and con, which means with. What that means is before your head knows it, your heart feels it. That is a gift of God. Your conscience is like guardrails. And so early on in your growth as a Christ follower, the guardrails on certain issues in your life, depending upon maybe your predisposition, your struggles, or your genetics, may need to be brought in a little tighter than other people simply for the sake of keeping you from veering your life off into a ditch. Technically, it's not a sin, but technically it's not beneficial either. So although we have freedom to have a glass of cab with our steak, is it beneficial, it, especially if you have a predisposition to drunkenness or if you're with somebody who does, then you bring those guardrails in. I have a friend who was a prominent um, music DJ, like played on the radios, like uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, gave his life to Christ and went into ministry. And he said for a season of his life, he had to just completely not listen to any sort of secular music. Not because it was a sin for everybody, because it would set him back in his growth as a Christ follower. He brought those guardrails in and it was a matter of conscience and conviction for him. Are, are you tracking with that? Am I making sense? So be careful about numbing yourself to your personal conscience or conviction, because if you do, you'll gradually become desensitized to it. 
You just use wisdom. You, you don't take that, and because you feel so strongly about it, you end up looking down on others for the same standards because they may be in a very different season of growth than you are. Here's number two. Avoid giving your conscience the same weight as God's voice in the lives of others. So what happens, man. We develop a deep-seated conviction about music, yoga, alcohol, politics, whatever it is. And we end up elevating our opinion to have equal weight as God's voice. And we kind of use that to browbeat other people. Look at what it says in verse 7. For we don't live for our, our, ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it is to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be both Lord, both of the living and of the dead. That in short, that is just a very long way of saying we live our lives for an audience of one. That we live our lives primarily accountable to God. So decisions that we make about non-essential issues are made out of our understanding at the time and where we are in our growth as a Christ follower at the time. And since we all belong to God, it is out of place for us to question the decisions of others on matters of conscience when it's not a matter central to the faith. Here's principle number three. Be really patient and kind towards those who see things differently. In other words, don't look down on others and don't condemn others. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. He goes, so why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. He's saying, hey, eventually, regardless of who you feel God is on this side of eternity, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we will stand before the judgment seat of God and we'll give an account of the way that we lived our personal lives before God. One of the most sobering passages, I think, in all the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.10, where it says this, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, that's not necessarily a judgment of salvation because our salvation is not based upon our good works or bad works. Our salvation is dependent upon Jesus' work for us. But he's drawing a distinction here. He's saying, yeah, but there is such a thing as reward. There is such a thing as God uh, saying, hey, let's take an account of the way that you lived your personal life. This is a judgment not of salvation, but of character. And so he's saying this, hey man, like we can do really, really good things with not so good motives. And the only one that knows would be God himself. God judges the motivations of our heart. So when it comes to disputable matters, let's refrain from being judge and jury of everyone else's life. That role is God's. I like how a theologian uh, Michael Bird summarizes it. He says this, he goes, Paul is bent on stressing that Jesus is Lord of the weak. Who is the weak? Teetotaling, Sabbath-keeping vegan Jews. And the strong, bourbon-sipping, Saturday-shopping, bacon-munching Gentiles. And he says, if God has justified them, they cannot condemn each other. If God has raised them up, they cannot put each other down. If they belong to the Lord, they belong to each other. If everyone calls him Lord, they must call each other brothers and sisters. If God has accepted them, they must accept each other. 
Principle four, prioritize the spiritual health of others over your personal freedoms. So yeah, you might have freedom in Christ to do that thing, but it may not be beneficial or wise. And for sake of your brothers and sisters, you'll refrain. So Paul does the best job of explaining this. So let me just read what he writes. He says in verse 13, decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it's wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Then you will not be criticized for doing something you believe is good. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. In other words, he says part of spiritual maturity is never saying this. Well, that's just their problem. They're just going to have to get over it. No, we're part of the body and we build each other up. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying to the Gentile Christians who he um, shared their same opinion. He's going, hey, guys, you got to stop bringing your tenderloin sandwiches to small group. You are freaking your Jewish brothers and sisters out. And they would say, but Jesus died so that we could enjoy bacon. And he goes, true, but Jesus died for them too. And actually you need to prioritize that over your personal freedoms. He puts it so clearly in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. He goes, you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom, here it is, to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, all 613 laws, love your neighbor as yourself. Lastly, let me just share this. Here's why we have unity. We're not trying to win a debate, but a war. And the war is not with other people. The war is not with culture or society, but with the principalities and powers of this dark world. It is the reality that people are dying every day, facing a Christless eternity. And remember who our enemy is. And we have a mission that is critical and eternity is on the line. And people are desperately looking for hope not our opinions about disputable matters. So he sums it up in verse 19 and he says, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. In other words, don't be so legalistic that people can't see Jesus because it is his grace that is transformative. I'll just share this one story before we close. Um, many of you know that uh, one of my preaching heroes was a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was this like little, like, like five foot five, like Welsh preacher, preached in London during World War II. I have every single one of his books that he's ever written. I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of his sermons. I've read his biographies. He's like one of my preaching heroes. And uh, he died in 1980. 
Um, but his uh, kids, he, has two, he had two daughters. They're still alive, and they're, they're in their 80s. Uh, this was about six or seven years ago. And uh, Lindsay and I were in London, and through mutual uh, connections, uh, they arranged, they knew I was a big fan of Martin Lloyd-Jones, they arranged for us to have lunch with one of his daughters. And this was like me getting to have lunch with like one of my hero's kids, you know? And I never had a chance to meet him, obviously. And I've read all of his books, got his biographies. And I sit down with her. It's just just this great conversation. And so I asked her the question. I said, I've read your dad's biography. And what is it that wasn't included in the biography that you'd want me to know about him? And she said, I'm so glad you asked. Because there's this one story that I think captures his heart as a man of God that they didn't include in the biography. She said, when uh, my daughter, his granddaughter was 14 years old, she was not yet a Christian, but she had grown up listening to her grandfather preach in that church in London. And she said, um, she was also a big soccer fan. Uh, Obviously they call it football in Europe. And she said, there was this big tournament coming through London, but it was gonna be on a Sunday morning. And she really, really wanted to go. And I told her no, because she needed to be in church, just like she always was. And she got so mad at me. We got into an argument, she slammed the door. And so she said, I went over and I told my dad about it. And I was expecting him to side with me and tell me that I was being a good mother. And she goes, instead, he said, why would you do that? He goes, why why don't you let her go to the soccer tournament? And she said, dad, like she needs to be in church. And he said, she said, he calmly looked at me and he said, honey, she is not yet a Christ follower. She's been in church every single week. She is uh, uh, listening to me preach every single weekend. He goes, you can let her go to a soccer tournament one Sunday. She goes, I was totally shocked. I didn't think he was going to say that. She said, so I went in, I told her that that she could go. And she said, her whole, my daughter's whole demeanor changed. She was shocked as well. She said, sort of ironically, the weekend of the tournament came, a big storm rolled through London, canceled the tournament. So she went to church anyway. But she goes, but my daughter told me that was the turning point. When granddad told me I could go to the soccer tournament, it opened up my heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She said, they didn't include that in the biography. And I don't really know why. So here's the thing is that we can disagree with others that we love and care about and win the debate, but do it in such a way that we both lose. Jesus dying prayer in John 17 was that we would be unified. Why? So that the world might And the unifying thing that Jesus did, the example that he gave us right before his arrest and crucifixion was the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do is I want to lead all of our campuses right now in a time of communion. Hopefully, uh, if you're a follower of Christ, you were able to grab the communion cup when you walked in. And we're going to take this together. And on the final night of Jesus' life, he gathered his disciples around a table and he broke some bread and poured some wine that represented his body that would be broken for him on the cross and his blood that he would shed for you and me. And he said, as often as you do this, remember me. In other words, keep your eyes fixed upon me. This is the main thing. And so we're gonna do this together. And so I wanna ask you to go ahead and open up uh, the side with the bread and just hold it in your fingers because we're gonna take it together in unity. And Jesus would break off the bread and he'd say, this represents my body broken for you. So let's take it together. And then Jesus poured some wine and he said, the wine represents my blood that I've shed so that you could be reconciled to me.
And what I'd like for you to do right now at all of our campuses, just spend just a couple of moments in reflection over that. And then after a moment or two, I'll conclude us by taking us to God in prayer.